Let's pray as we come to the word. Father God, we pray now as we hear your word, Father, settle our hearts, open our hearts, soften our hearts, and open our ears, Father, to hear your word. And Father, pray that you would change us from within. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever felt utterly hopeless? All options exhausted, no way out. Hope is one of those things, isn't it, that when lost, our whole being collapses, doesn't it? Civil rights campaigner and expert at hope, um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., once said, if you lose hope, somehow you lose the vitality that keeps you moving. You lose that courage to be, that quality that helps you go on in spite of it all. We've all met people in life, haven't we, uh, who've lost hope, or if we haven't in life, then certainly in films. I'll show you a bit about my sort of era of films when I was growing up, but when I think about somebody losing hope, I think of Beast uh, in Beauty and the Beast, where he believes that all hope has gone of him being redeemed. He thinks he's had his last chance, and the mob arrives to kill him, and he tells his servants just to let them come. He's utterly hopeless. Well, the folk that we meet in our passage this morning in Joel chapter 2 are utterly hopeless. Or if they aren't, they certainly should be. We're about to hear about utter devastation, complete disaster, total meltdown, unavoidable, inescapable calamity. An army is coming that will wipe them out, an army of locusts. And that's where we're looking at our first 11 verse, Armageddon. Um, because it's an army that's bringing it, Armageddon, verses 1 to 11. Now what we saw in chapter 1 was utter devastation. If you were here last week, we saw uh, what the locusts had done to the nation of Israel. And yet somehow here in chapter 2, it's worse. Whereas the locusts in chapter 1 were pictured as a, a mindless, devastating mass that would sort of come and, and land on the, the land and destroy it, Here, actually, they're pictured as a very deliberate, destroying army. They have a purpose. They have a purpose behind their plundering. There is intent behind this. So this isn't just an accident or a natural disaster. This is an invasion that is coming. The army is coming. The end is near. Now, this might be a little bit technical, but it's important for understanding what's going on. In chapter 2, the tense changes from chapter 1. So it's no longer saying what has happened in the past. It's now put in the present tense, what is happening in the present. Now some believe that this means another swarm of locusts has appeared. This is in the midst of what's going on. Whereas others believe this is sort of a prophetic vision of the future. Now I believe the second is the most sensible option. This is a, a vision of the future. That, that Joel is making it vivid by telling you as, it, as though it's happening in the present. And Joel is taking that picture that they know from chapter 1, that devastating locust swarm, and is using it to paint a picture of the future, the day of the Lord. So what we have here in chapter 1 is a prophecy of a coming desolation. A desolation that will end all desolations. And to ask whether they're locusts or whether they're actual, an actual army sort of misses the point. Though it would seem, though, that the vision is of locusts that look like an army rather than the other way around. 
But the point that he's making by this vision is that they will destroy absolutely everything. This will be the end for Judah. Ultimately, this will be the end of everything. And you see there in verse 1 that to blow a trumpet in Zion. Zion is right at the centre of Jerusalem. The Lord's holy hill. It's right in the centre of the national life. Right in the centre of their capital. And the trumpet here is supposed to be an alarm. That's what it says, doesn't it? Sound an alarm. So think of the trumpets a bit like uh, the sirens from World War II. The, you know, the air raid sirens that would go off and tell people to find cover. Get inside. The enemy is close. In fact, the enemy is here. But where is here in the passage? Zion. Right at the centre of the capital. Right at the centre of their cultural and religious life. The enemy is upon them. The enemy is already at the heart of their nation. It would be like saying in England, sound the the alarm at Westminster. Sound the alarm at Buckingham Palace. The enemy is here. Well, no wonder the inhabitants are to tremble at what is happening. I mean, where are they to run to? Where are they to retreat to? If the very heart of the nation is taken, if the very heart of their country is under siege. The day here is described as a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. This is a terrifying dark day. The mountains even are covered with a dark horde. Imagine this morning we were driving and the the Chevin was covered with fog. You couldn't really see it. But imagine if that was just thick darkness over the Chevin. Thick darkness over the whole land. The likes of which the world has never seen before. And it's not even just the darkness, it brings fire and destruction. You get this picture, don't you, in the passage of, uh, in verse, uh, in verse three. The Garden of Eden before them. Now the land is lush and fertile. What's left behind this horde? A desert. Not so much as a leaf blowing in the wind. We saw last week, didn't we, with that vision of the locusts, the way they would just eat absolutely anything. All is gone. They're like horses trampling in their path. Now locusts do look a bit like horses. Apparently in a couple of languages like Italian and German, their name sort of means little horse. uh, Just because they look like a sort of galloping horse uh, as they go along. But really the idea here is their destructive power, like a cavalry that just rushes through, crushing all that's before them. The noise, apparently, as well, with a locust swarm is overwhelming. A bit like standing next to a jet engine when it's on. I've never stood next to a jet engine uh, when it's on, but uh, maybe some people who work at airports might know uh, that. It's all right. (laughs) So it'd be much louder than that. We wouldn't be able to hear uh, in the room. But here it's pictured like the sound of rumbling chariots crashing over the battlefield, breaking over all that's before them. Nothing can stop them. Even mountains can't stop them. Do you notice they just jump over the mountains? Like tanks, they're unstoppable. They just keep going. Like fire, they devour all that is before them. No wonder that the faces go pale as the blood drains from them. This is doom. This is dread. It would be a bit like the feeling for them of those soldiers who would go over the trenches in World War I. You know, you know what's coming, don't you? 
Your fate is essentially sealed. There's nowhere to hide. The army is charging. The walls are being scaled. And the troops have this terrifying march like a straight line. Terrifying in order and intention. A bit like World War II with the sort of German troops. Determined, unswerving, unstoppable. Wave after wave after wave over houses, on the roof, through the windows. Relentless destruction until all is destroyed. And then it gets even bigger in verses 10 and 11. It takes a sort of cosmic twist. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The very earth and heaven shake before this horde. The sun, moon and stars go out. The sky turns a deafening black. The very elements of the world begin to fall apart as the end approaches. This is utter devastation for Israel. Utter devastation for them. And then comes the twist in verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? It's not the Assyrians or the Babylonians who are attacking. It's not really even the locusts. Who is attacking them? The Lord is. He is their enemy. It is his army who are attacking. It's the Lord himself who is coming for them. The Lord Almighty who is seeking their destruction. There really is nothing they can do. Nowhere they can go. Nowhere they can hide. The Lord will destroy them. His army is huge and powerful. No one can overcome it. Which poses that question right at the end of verse 11. Who can endure it? I mean, what chance do you stand against someone who can blot out the sun? Who can blow out the stars like they're candles? What possible hope can you have when God is seeking your destruction? When your own God is after you, who can you turn to? This is game over. This is Armageddon. This is Judgment Day. And this is what was missing from the last chapter. This is clearly judgment from God. No question marks here at all. God is visiting judgment on his people. And the terrifying thing for the reader of this is it's them. This is supposedly his own people. The alarm isn't ringing in Nineveh or Babylon or or Edom. The alarm is ringing in Zion, their capital, their home. The picture that we see at the beginning with the darkness and gloom, well, that's the picture of when God appears, when God shows up in Exodus. This is God visiting judgment on his people. Now, we're still not told what sin it is they've committed to bring down such judgment. But God is not a fickle, temperamental God. He's not got a quick temper. He's slow to anger. 
He also doesn't judge without reason. He's righteous, holy and full of truth. But doesn't that even just make it all the more terrifying? There's no higher court to appeal to. There's no better judge to hear your case. If judgment is coming, it's coming deservedly. This is not a miscarriage of justice. This is perfect justice. This is a people getting what they deserve. Whatever their sin, this is the correct judgment. This is right and proper justice. And would we expect anything else from a righteous and holy God? But here's where it gets even more terrifying. The Bible says that we have all sinned. Romans 3.23 is on the back of your sheets. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So whether that be in big ways or in small ways, all of us are in the same category. Sinners. And I include myself in this as well. This is not some guy pointing the finger out there. Actually, all of us have the same problem. Sin. Now, when I explain this in assemblies at the schools in in Otley, I explain it like this. Sin is shove off God. I'm in charge. No to your rules. Okay, just the way to remember it. It's an attitude that we have before it's a thing that we do. It's an attitude that tells God that we don't want him in our lives. Whether we're like the prodigal son in the New Testament who goes wild, or whether we're like the older son who behaves but treats his dad like his employer rather than his father, all of us have that same attitude problem. All of us face the same issue that the people in this passage must face. Because if we have all sinned, then we also must face God's inescapable judgment. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. All of us face God's inescapable judgment. Now notice some of you here this morning, that might sound a little bit far-fetched. But is it really? Don't all of us have an intrinsic sense of justice? We may not all agree on the specifics of right and wrong, but we agree that right should be rewarded and that wrong should be punished. Especially when it's wrong that's been done to us. We're quite indignant, aren't we, that that be punished. All of us have a sense that justice should be done. We're frustrated with our world when good goes unrewarded and when wrong goes unpunished. Just watch a football game and watch a referee make a bad decision and you'll see how people feel about justice And getting the right choice. The fans are incensed aren't they. When there's a feeling that there's been an injustice. All of us have this inbuilt sense of justice. But where does it come from? Well could it be that actually we're inbuilt to expect justice? Because actually someone put that there? Could it be that a God of justice has set justice in our hearts? Could it be a clue that one day there will be justice? As we all long for, when wrongs are righted and evil is punished. So it might not be as far-fetched as you think. But if it is true that this day is coming when we'll all be judged, and the Bible is quite clear that that is true, then we're left with the same question, aren't we, as our passage has. Who can endure it? Who can pass the test? Who can go free in the face of such unrelenting, terrifying judgment? 
Now originally I was going to stop there. That was the end of our passage this morning. But you'll be thankful to hear there is one more point this morning. There's the answer to that question. What do you do in the event of an impending personal Armageddon? Well, verses 12 to 17, armistice. Let me read to you 12 to 14. Return even now, declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. We get those brilliant words, yet, even now, there is hope. There is still time. This is not the way the story has to end for us. It's a bit like Scrooge in A Christmas Carol. You know, he's presented with the future and he sees his own gravestone. He asks the spirit, are these the shadows of things that will be or are they shadows of things that may be only? Now, I want to say here that Judgment Day is inevitable. It will be. It will happen. But our own fate is not inevitable, in that if we do what this passage says, we can avoid the coming judgment. So what does it say? How do we escape the inescapable? It says, doesn't it, return to me with all your heart. Return to me with all your heart. Whatever the specifics of what they've done, here's the sum of it. They've turned away from God. They've turned their backs on the Lord. Now that might be outwardly, no longer even making a pretense of living for God, but living for other things, for other gods. Or it might be inwardly, honouring God with their lips, but inwardly their love for God has gone cold. I'm guessing in these circumstances it's the second. Because we read in verse 13, Rend your hearts, And not your garments. It's a very pointed command, isn't it? It's quite specific. It's as though the people are very good at tearing their clothes and and falling on their knees and, and pulling out their hair without actually engaging their hearts. They go through the motions of repentance without really repenting. One of the most terrifying verses in the New Testament that I could find is this, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. It's on the back of your sheets. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. You see, there's a sadness that's linked with sin that isn't repentance. There are tears that we can cry at sin... That are not repenting. Here they're told to fast and weep and mourn. But they're to be real tears. Not crocodile tears. They're not to do fasting for show. But serious reflection and contrition. You see real repentance is not a show. It's not just being sad. It's not even just a prayer that we pray. 
Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of action. Whether we we say that out loud in a prayer, whether we express that physically in tears, whether we accompany it with fasting, all those things are sort of incidental really, because what matters is the change of heart. You see, repentance is not saying sorry, though that is part of it, isn't it? Repentance is not even asking for forgiveness, though that is part of it. It's a heart change that leads to a life change. It's a turning of direction. That's literally what the word means here when it says return. It literally means turn, change direction. But to be real repentance, it's not even just a turning away from the bad things that we do. It must include that, or a turn from sin. But it also matters where you turn to. He doesn't just tell them to turn away. In fact, he tells them to turn to, return to me, God says. Return to the Lord your God, says Joel in verse 13. That's why it's a heart change. It's something that we do inside before it works itself out outside. You see, you could become a committed Muslim and your life would change. You would probably not live as you did before. Outwardly, it would probably look like you were committing less sin, if you like. You could become a Buddhist and your life will change. You might show more respect to to life than you did before. But those things aren't repentance. Repentance requires us not just to turn away from something, but to turn to something, to turn to someone, turning to God. Now, as evangelicals, I think we're very good at doing things that sound like repentance, aren't we? Saying sorry. I mean, we live in a culture where you, somebody bumps into you and you say sorry. You know, we're very good at saying sorry. We do things like asking for forgiveness. We're very good at beating ourselves up inside. But on the whole, we're not very good at repentance. Actually turning from our sin. Abhorring it and turning to God with all our hearts. If we think that saying sorry and then carrying on as before is enough. Then we've really misunderstood how huge the problem is that we're facing in the first point. If you think about it, it's amazing that God would even permit us to do this at all. It's only because of God's loving and gracious character that we can come at all. That we can escape his judgment in any way. But look at what God is like, verse 13. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. It's actually a quote there from Jonah that we've got. When God spares the great pagan city of Nineveh, when they repent after Jonah's call. And that quote is based on another quote. When God reveals himself and the meaning of his name to Moses in Exodus. As he does that, he's saying this is the essence of what it means for God to be God. He is the most exacting righteous judge that has ever been or ever will be. 
And he is also the most loving, gracious being inside or outside the universe. He's both. But in his love lies our only hope. But God is not a cosmic vending machine. Look at verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. As we turn to God, he doesn't owe us forgiveness if we return to him. He's not in our debt. We're not doing him a favour by turning to him with all our hearts. Sometimes you get that idea, don't you, that God is on a bit of an ego trip. You know, all turn to God and massage his ego. No, that's not the case at all, is it? Actually, all should turn to him or perish. That's the reality of the situation. So what does he counsel them to do to do this, to return with all their hearts? Well, we see that in verses 15 and 16. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? The trumpet again is to blow in Zion, but not as an alarm, as a rallying call. All are to gather at Zion. Elders, children, babies, couples on their honeymoon. That's really what it's talking about there. Absolutely everybody is to come, from the greatest to the least. Now it sounds very similar to last week, doesn't it? This is, though this is a bit different, this is to avoid disaster. Not after disaster has struck. And there is one more difference as well. The other difference is, Rather than reflect, it really is to repent. That is what they're to do. They're to gather to repent. All have sinned, so all must gather. All have sinned, so all must repent. Fasting last time we said was ambiguous, didn't we? But here there's no ambiguity. They're to do it with their mourning and their weeping. It's a sign to God of the gravity of their attitude. The priests are told to weep in verse 17, not because their food has gone, but weeping to God in prayer. And what are they to pray? Well, the priests are to pray that God would spare the people. For their goodness? No. For their religious actions? No. For their repentance? No. But for God's reputation? That's actually why they're to cry out. That's what they're to do. These are his people, they're saying. What will the onlookers say? They're to beg him not to make his people a swear word among the nations. You see, if we appeal to God on the basis of ourselves, then we'll fail. We're fickle, changeable, sinful. They are to appeal to God on his terms. On the basis of his name. On the basis of his reputation as a loving, forgiving God. 
But how can they even do that? Because God is still that God of justice. God is still that God who must bring, uh, must bring judgment. How can they do this? Well, is it that the love of God is sort of battling with the justice of God within him and, and love wins? Is that the idea? Not at all. Actually, God's solution satisfies both his love and his justice. God's solution that can mean that both chapters can be true, that God can bring judgment and we can escape it, the solution to that is the cross of Christ. At the cross of Christ, God's justice is seen. As Jesus, God's son, bore that terrible judgment that we spoke about at the beginning. But at the cross of Christ, God's love is seen. As Jesus, God's son, dies for his people. The supreme act of love. This is the basis for our faith in God, the cross. This is the basis for our repentance to God, the cross. This is the basis of our life, the cross. And this is the basis of our hope, the cross. Jesus bore judgment day on the cross for us. As the sky turned black, as the sun forbeared to shine, as the earth itself shook as its Maker bowed his head. Jesus took it so that we can return to God. As that old hymn goes, there's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and all may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. The cross brings us hope. In the face of utter hopelessness. When things seemed at their darkest, actually God was turning the tables of history. God was making a way for evil to be defeated without the whole of mankind being destroyed, doomed to judgment. The cross is the ultimate symbol of hope. Hope for the hopeless. Love for the loveless that they might lovely be. So if you feel hopeless in the face of God's judgment, if you look at your own failure and wonder how God could ever accept you, then actually you've understood something really important, something really crucial. Left to ourselves, we are hopeless. There really is nothing that we can do. And yet, God sent his son into the world on a rescue mission. To rescue the hopeless. To bring light to the darkness. So turn to him. Turn and put your trust in him alone. If you've wandered away from God this morning, return to him. If you're close to God this morning, return to him anew every day. His mercy is new every morning. Turn to him before it's too late and we really are utterly hopeless. As Jesus returns, not as our saviour, but as our judge. Turn to him while there's still time. And he will accept you in. He will forgive you. And you can be his. Let's pray. Actually, we're going to pray with words on the the screen altogether, sorry. And just give you a second to read through what it says. And then we'll pray together.
Let's pray. Father God, we acknowledge that we have sinned against you in thought, word and deed. Help us to turn from our sin with all our heart. Help us not just to rend our clothes, but to rend our hearts and turn back to you. We have no right to your pardon, but we plead the blood of your Son, who died in our place. May he be forever praised. Amen.